This is James Cooper with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat and Southwind District with your Extension Crop Report. This year, it will be important not to plant wheat too early for an uncommon reason, dry subsoil going into the winter. Hopefully, the drying corn has captured enough water in the rains that we have gotten to get the wheat germinated before some timely October rains. Anything green needs water to grow, or at least to maintain itself, so orderly developed wheat needs more water. Bigger wheat in the fall doesn't always translate to higher yield at harvest either. Proper planting time is a balance with current weather and soil conditions. While usually we have little control over when we get to plant wheat in southeast Kansas due to the rain, ideally it's somewhere between October 5th to October the 20th. Too early and the risk of the mosaic fungal diseases increases due to the prevalence of aphids that spread the diseases. Other issues such as the hessian fly increases as well. Too much fall growth can lower the winter hardiness as some of the large primary tillers won't survive the winter when their growing points gets above the soil surface. If the wheat is intended to be grazed, then the planting date can be moved up to any time now as the grazing pressure will keep the wheat smaller. Seeding rates should be based upon planting dates. In southeast Kansas, the rates are around 1.1 to 1.4 million seeds per acre. That rate increases to 25 to 50% for late planted wheat. The seeding rate for wheat intended to be grazed needs to be increased as well. Seeding rates are best based upon the number of seeds per acre rather than the number of pounds of seed per acre. Seed size can have huge differences in seeding rates. It could lead to overplanting or underplanting by 30%. Certified seed is usually has the number of seeds per pound listed, but many farmers plant their own bin-run wheat. Determining seeds per pound is easy. Just count a handful of seeds and weigh them on a scale, doing this a few times to get an average. Wheat doesn't need much nitrogen in the fall. 20 to 40 pounds of nitrogen per acre is plenty, as the rest of it will be top dressed in the spring. Since most wheat here is double cropped into soybeans, it is important to know your soybean fertility needs before the wheat to fully capitalize on the nitrogen in the phosphorus fertilizer. Also, there won't be a chance to incorporate lime or fertilizer before the soybeans, so plans for both crops need to be made now. Even if it's primarily going to be used as a cover crop, a little nitrogen goes a long way. And of course, don't forget about seed treatments, especially for late planted wheat or bin run wheat from a field known to have smut or fusarium issues. If you have any questions about wheat planting, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. We also have the 2020 Wheat Variety Books available at your local Extension office. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. This is Wendy Powell, the Wildcat Extension District Livestock Production Agent. Fall has historically been a time when producers look to correct acidic pH problems in their soil. Why do we often hear this is a good time of the year to lime? Many producers utilize warm season crops and forages, and since lime reaction in the soil is a time-dependent process, fall applications take advantage of winter rainfall, and 90 to 150 days for buffering of pH to occur within the soil profile. Lime has remained relatively unchanged for thousands of years. This is because common liming materials like calcium carbonate or ag lime is primarily crushed limestone based rock. 
The neutralization of acidity is caused by the hydrogen and calcium ions interacting. This process requires that the calcium particles come in contact with the acidic soil particles. This is easily accomplished through tillage and subsequent mixing of the soil with the liming material. However, in a no-till or pasture situation, we're left with the action of downward filtration of water to move particles within the rooting zone and create change in the pH. This indicates that for forages, finer lime particles should react faster because of more rapid filtration into the soil. Very coarse ground lime may take a decade or longer for the little lime pebbles to weather and break down. This would result in poor buffering and small changes in pH that would do little to lighten root stress. The purity of a liming material, measured as calcium carbonate equivalent, also known as CCE, and the fineness or reactivity is used to determine the effective calcium carbonate equivalent, or ECCE. This classification system allows producers to compare apples to apples with different liming materials or particle sizes. Accordingly, K-State Research and Extension recommendations are based on the required amount of ECCE to return a soil to optimum pH levels. Coarser particle sizes lower the ECCE because they take longer to break down. If your local lime vendor has a 50% ECCE lime and the soil test for your soil specifies one and a quarter tons per acre, you'll need to apply two and a half tons of this product to meet an optimum pH level. It's obvious lime with higher ECC probably costs more because it takes less material and will produce a faster change in pH. The economics are the true determining factor in product selection. Remember, ECCE is a tool to help producers determine the proper application rate regardless of the liming source. If you'd like to check the pH level of your soil or to know more about correcting the levels, give me a call at the Wildcat Extension District, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. Crows are native birds in Kansas, having lived here for hundreds of years. The common crow is one of America's best-known birds. Their large body size of 17 to 21 inches long, with completely coal-black feathers and the familiar caw-caw voice, makes them an easy bird to identify. No other birds should be confused with the crow, with one exception. In the western one-fourth of Kansas, a summer and winter resident, the white-necked raven can be found. Sometimes crows and ravens intermingle in winter flocks. The raven, even though, as the name implies, white-necked, does not have a white neck visible to a person watching the birds. Ravens can be distinguished from crows by their larger size, call, wedge-shaped tail, and flight pattern which commonly includes soaring or gliding. 
Crows have a frequent, steady wing beat with little or no gliding. Crows pair off in early spring, about February to May, building nests of twigs and coarse stems and lining them with feathers, grass, cloth, strings, etc. These nests are usually 18 to 60 feet above the ground in trees. Where there are not many trees, crows may nest on the ground or on poles. The average clutch is 4 to 6 eggs, which hatch in 18 days. Usually, there is only one brood a year, but there may be two. Both the male and female share incubating the eggs and caring for the young. The young leave the nest at about five weeks of age and forage with their parents throughout the summer. Later in the fall, families join together either to migrate or to overwinter large flocks that sometimes exceed one million crows. Few wild crows live more than four to six years, although some have lived 14 years in the wild and some over 20 years in captivity. One important aspect of crow behavior is their congregation into huge flocks in fall and winter. In Kansas, most crow problems occur because of roosting, which generally starts in mid-October and lasts until mid-February or late March, depending on the breakup of winter-like weather. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave Strauss with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. If you want to plant trees, fall is the time to do it. There are several reasons a fall planting is better than a spring planting when it comes to healthier trees. Trees respond to the warm soil temperatures from the summer by growing their root systems deeper, which leads to better long-term health and a faster growth rate. Fall plantings also gives new trees extra time to prepare for summer stress. Lastly, you can confirm the fall color of your desired tree if you are buying in person from a local nursery or garden center. For this reason, most trees you can grow in our area should be planted around this time of year. Redbuds, magnolias, tulip poplars, and dogwoods are some of the few exceptions that should instead be planted in the spring. The proper technique for planting a new tree depends on the way it's grown. There are three ways trees are sold, as bare root seedlings, as container trees, or as ball and burlap trees. For container and ball and burlap trees, the hole you dig for planting should be two to three times as wide as the root ball and slightly shallower than the root ball. The soil will settle once the tree is in the hole, so digging the hole deeper than the root ball could lead to roots being too deep and eventual girdling of the tree. If the tree is in ball and burlap, remove all burlap and any wire baskets to allow free root growth. Backfill the hole with the removed soil, give it a good watering, and the tree will be on its way. Two things to check for when first planting a tree are girdled roots and the potential for sun scald. Girdled roots are roots that have wrapped around the base of the trunk. Left alone, these roots can choke the tree to death. Often, these roots can be unwound from the trunk to serve as normal roots. If not, these roots should be cut away. Sun scald is a condition caused by direct exposure to intense sunlight during the summer and can cause permanent, sometimes fatal damage to the tree. 
If the tree is planted in an open area with no shade, sunscald will often occur on the southwest side of the tree, and is particularly common in maples. Trunks can be wrapped in the tree's first year to prevent sunscald, or alternatively, you can leave lower branches instead of pruning them out to provide shade to the trunk. Wrapping should be removed in its first year to allow the trunk to expand. Just as there are things you should do when planting a tree, there are also things to avoid. You should not amend the hole or apply any fertilizer to the tree. Amending the hole with things like sand or compost can cause water drainage and collection issues, and fertilizing a tree early in its growth discourages roots from seeking out nutrients throughout the soil profile, leading to a weaker root system. Many people stake young trees to provide stability, but these stakes should not prevent the tree from moving. If the tree cannot move, the wires stabilizing the tree are too tight around the trunk and function like a tourniquet, cutting off circulation of water and nutrients. Lastly, do not prune a young tree too heavily. Minor cuts to encourage strong branching are acceptable, but the more life growth you can leave on the tree, the more the tree will be able to build up energy reserves for future stresses. For more information on today's topic, contact your local extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.